0: And this week, we will be finishing off what we left unattended last week. So that would be specifically verses 4 through 7 of chapter 3. But because it's all part of one flow of thoughts, we'll be reading, once again, the whole section. So from verses 1 through 7. So, 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This uh, saying is faithful. If a certain person aspires to be an overseer, he desires a good work. It is necessary that an overseer must be above reproach. He must be a one woman man. He must be sober. He must be self-controlled. He must be respectable. He must be hospitable. He must be a teacher. He must not be a drunkard. He must not be violent. Rather, he must be gentle. He must be peaceable. And he must not be a lover of money. He must be a good caretaker of his own household. He must have children who are in submission and who demonstrate respect in every way. Now, if one does not know how to steward his own household, how will he be able to steward the church of God? He must not be young so that he is not puffed up, falling into the judgment of the devil. And so it is necessary that he must have a good reputation from outsiders so that he is not disgraced and once again fall into the snare of the devil. So these verses, uh, we will be focusing on the latter half of that section in 1 Timothy 3. uh, Introduced to us what I introduced last week as the anatomy of a pastor. Uh, This is how we know who are the right fits for leadership within the church, who are the ones who we are to entrust ourselves to, who are the ones to guide us and direct us and uh, be responsible for us. And this week... It's not so much the job description list that we're going to be looking at, but specifically this this illustration of spiritual fatherhood that is introduced for us in in the text, and then Paul, from this image of spiritual fatherhood, introduces what we might say is a kind of illustration for how we ought to understand the relationship between a church and its elders, or the members of a church to the elders of the church, and uh, we might say we might say it this way that. Even in our own understanding of life, the, the experience of a father, having a father that is good or bad, massively shapes the outcome and the thinking and the responsibility and the trajectory of one's life. It will shape the environment of the family. It will shape the environment of the marriage. Uh, it will shape the environment that the children will then produce when they go into the world and, and interact and, and hold jobs and, and hold friendships and even themselves begin to form families. Uh, Fatherhood is a a leadership structure that sets a pattern for basically the the whole foundation of family life. And so it makes sense why Paul would use that illustration of fatherhood in reference to the elders of the church, them being spiritual fathers of the members of the church. And this, Paul's already introduced himself as a father to Timothy. Remember in the beginning in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, he says, Timothy is my true born child in the faith. So he's his relationship to Timothy is one of uh, older, wiser father to young child, true child. And now he tells Timothy, hey, as you are stewarding this church and as you are raising up others to steward this church alongside you, you are to consider yourselves to be spiritual fathers to the ones whom you are serving and who you are responsible for. So the job description is not so much a list of what we've said last week is not so much a list of things that one must be able to do in the office of elder. It's actually more so a series of character requirements with really one task which is given and that that task is the ability to teach. Everything else falls in the domain of character responsibility, character building assessments. And so it is out of this frame that then Paul launches into verse four, where he says, here's another requirement that is listed. Uh, An elder must be a good caretaker of his own household, or this, this person who aspires to this office, they must match this requirement. Now, in the last, in the last list that we looked at, uh, verses 1 through 3, the list is in rapid-fire succession. And as you, as you heard me reading that, I inserted the words, he must be, he must be, he must be at every line item, because he must be is described in every way by that series of list items. But what's strange about the pattern that we're looking at here from verses 4 through 7 is he doesn't just list the requirement, but he also lists the reason or the rationale behind the requirement in these last three examples. So in the first several that he gives, verses one through three, he just says he must be this, he must be this, he must be this, he must be this, in rapid fire succession. But then when he turns to the image of being a good caretaker of his own household, he gives a reason for why that should be the case. So for instance, Uh, When he says uh, a man who aspires to the office of overseer must be able to watch his own household well or caretake of his own house, take care of his own house. Uh, He must have children who are in submission. He must have children who demonstrate respect. Why? Uh, The reason is if he doesn't know how to steward his own household, how on earth is he supposed to steward the Church of God? So the rationale for why this requirement is given Is is listed for us. And you'll actually notice that that's in every case. The reason they need to not be young converts is listed so they don't get puffed up. And the reason they can't be, uh, and the reason they need to be well thought of by outsiders is so that they don't fall into the snare of the devil. Now we'll talk about each of those, but it's a pattern worth recognizing, such that Paul, as he's getting deeper into this list, is starting to give reasons for why he's not just giving random requirements out of the blue. He's giving us uh, the reason these are safeguards and not arbitrary rules. He's telling us the reason why we need to take these as important matters. So the test of fatherhood is the first one that's listed, the test of, we would say, good fatherhood. And this encapsulates many of the ideas that has been listed in the first several verses, particularly uh, as as we talk about, uh, he must be a husband of one wife. Uh, So part of being a good father is first being a good husband to the wife who would have children, uh, who you'd have children with. Uh, You can't be a good father to your children if you fail to love your wife well. It's, it's, it's really impossible. You're really backfilling a lot of stuff. Uh, it's really kind of inconsistent, we might say, for someone to be a great dad and also to be then a terrible husband. Right? That, that would be a, a mismatch. It's possible in a fallen world, but we would say it's a huge mismatch for those two realities to be at play. So being a good caretaker of his own household, remember, does not just include the children, but his own household will also include the wife of whom he shares that household with. So he must be a one-woman man is echoed by he must be a good caretaker of his own household. Similarly, uh, he must be self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Uh, He must not be a drunkard. He must not be violent, but rather he must be gentle. All of that gets encapsulated in the idea of what a good steward is in their household. So if you think about a father who is doing their job well, they strike the balance between gentle and, and disciplinary perfectly, or they should. They should strive towards that end. And so that's really what he's been introducing to us in the first several verses. An elder should be someone who who walks that line well. They're not a quarrelsome person. They're gentle, but they're not a pushover as well. They need to be able to defend the church. They need to be able to rebuke false teachers, as we saw in the requirement to teach. And this is encapsulated in a good father as well in a household, because a good dad is not going to be run around by his children. He's not gonna let the children run the household. He's not gonna let the wife run the household. He will take ownership and responsibility for that domain. But also, he won't do so in an authoritarian way where he just tells everyone what to do and how it ought to be done and does not serve and love and live alongside suffering with the children and with his wife well. We might say it this way, uh, that that balance between being gentle uh, and being disciplinary is really what we could summarize good fatherhood to be and ultimately what good eldership is as well. And a lot of that falls in the category of wisdom where the person who's gonna serve in this role must have the discernment and the shrewdness to know when is it a time to encourage someone who's caught up in sin? When is it a time to heal them? And when is it a time to say, tell them you need to wake up because this is killing you. This is killing your family. This is killing your relationships. This is going to be the death of you. A a parent cannot be a good parent if they spare the rod to their children. Neither can an elder be a good elder if they spare discipline to their church. But it doesn't make you better if you discipline more, right? A father who's just running around looking to discipline and looking to nitpick becomes a vice to the household. Everyone's walking on eggshells. Everyone's worried about how they are to speak, what they are to say, how they are to live, what they could and could not share. Is this a safe environment to be known and to be loved and to be cared for? or is this an environment where I need to front a different way than I actually am? An elder needs to be able to walk that line where they are both a gentle, safe place to be known and to be uh, shepherds in the household, but also to not, not tolerate a bunch of nonsense in the midst because that produces a toxic environment in the house as well. So the rationale behind why fatherhood is a test of eldership is not because you can only admit someone to being an elder in the church if they already have children and if they're already a father, the reason is because it's a, it's a snapshot of their life. It tells you a great deal about how they will be when they're in this other role. Uh, you might think about it this way. When you are uh, at your job, wherever you, wherever you find employment, I would venture to guess you have coworkers that you work alongside your equals, peers, who have a great many things that they would change or want to change about the company or the organization that they work for. In fact, I've never worked in a, in a company where the people who were working kind of at the ground level and kind of in those lower rungs didn't have a lot of opinions about how other people should be running the show. But those same people also have a tendency to not get their own stuff done. And that is usually a testimony to why they're in this role and not in a different role. If you can't make your own bed in the morning, as a, a, a marine uh, admiral has once said, can't make your own bed in the morning, You're not gonna be changing the world anytime soon. Everyone wants to change the world. Uh, Nobody wants to do the chores, do the dishes, make their bed. Many people, uh, unfortunately, want to be well thought of in a broad Christian community. They want to be well known, respected, uh, people who are looked up to, uh, but they don't wanna go home and, and suffer with their children and their wife after a long, hard day and how they perform in that much smaller microcosm is a huge indicator for the, how they will perform when more responsibility is given. It is never the case where someone has character flaws that are showing in crack form early on that you should go, let's put more weight on that and see if it holds. When you, this is, this is true when uh, I was training uh, baseball players, freshmen, sophomores, and juniors, how to exercise. If, if when they're early on squatting weight on the bar, and they have a little bit of weight on the bar, and you're already seeing things like they're not really good on squat depth, they're losing their balance at the bottom, things like that. The solution to that isn't, let's put more weight on and see how they handle it. The solution is, let's make sure they have this sound and this down before you go ahead and throw a bunch of weight on their back. Because what'll happen is the sustainable flaws at the early level will be massively exposed at the later level. So too it is with fatherhood. It's a good indication of how someone will pastor a church. Now, it's not the only test, right? It exists in a plethora of others, but it's a good indication. The way Calvin says it is, believers uh, should aspire to have every home be like a little church. Uh, Believers should aspire to have their own households be something they steward and care for with the spiritual responsibility that they would take if they were in a pastoral position in a church. So husbands, men, those of you who aspire to be husbands in the future, you must take seriously your responsibility to spiritually caretake for those who you are entrusted with it is not enough for you to say i'm going to trust that they are going to spiritually mature i'm going to trust that my children will grow up in a fear and admonition of the lord you're responsible for making sure that such is the case in the same way that a pastor can't just go well i hope my members are reading good books and learning good theology and and whatnot no they're responsible for making sure that stuff is taking place so too it is uh, in a microcosm in the household So the test of fatherhood points us to the need, which is that, uh, well, the danger is if if they're not good in this one area and you put them in a pastoral role, they're biting off more than they can chew. They're not going to be able to handle this new responsibility. And that takes us then to the second test, which is obviously a, a wise test as well. And we would say this is the test of maturity. This test shows us that you can't just put someone who's a brand spanking new Christian in a huge, responsible, authoritative position and expect it to go well. He says it this way in verse six he must not be young or uh it's really the term uh for a young plant a young olive shoot he must not be a new convert he must not be freshly minted he must not be brand spanking new to this thing because the problem with someone who's new to christianity as many as many as much as that's a blessing and encouragement is they're excited about everything zealous about everything encouraged by everything And they have not yet had the seasoned life experience of the Christian show up where they know what it is to suffer or to comfort or to encourage or to go through a period of time where they need to pray even if they don't feel like praying or what it is to discipline themselves when they're not feeling excited about faith. A a young Christian doesn't have any of that experience. They just know the excitement of it. And so it makes sense why you wouldn't put someone who's brand new to Christianity in the position of being spiritually responsible for others in the church. So uh, an elder must not be someone who's, who's brand new to this thing. They must not be a young convert, a recent convert, a new Christian. And then the rationale is interesting. The danger is if you put them in that role, they would become puffed up. Or they would become boastful or arrogant. And then they would fall into the condemnation of the judgment of the devil. Really the accuser, the slanderer, but we kind of know what Paul's getting at. It's the one who spiritually seeks to uproot and destroy the life of the church who is behind all this. And we guard ourselves as a church from that kind of scandal when we take Paul's words here seriously. If we don't, we can consider the consequences. For instance, if someone is new to the faith, young in the faith, particularly zealous about doctrine and not yet knowing how to wield that well in the life of a church, they will wreak havoc in the life of a church They will themselves think they know everything and that will cause a huge problem with how they interact with believers, how they interact with other Christians, and how they learn how to love people who might be different from them and have different convictions. There's a, I can't remember the exact name of the term and I I tried to look it up but I couldn't remember it. The idea is when you're first learning new information, uh, in the early stages of learning new information, you begin to think of yourself as an expert pretty early on. Like you get the hang of something and pretty soon you think, I've got this down. And then a fascinating thing happens where the more you learn about that thing over time, the more you understand how little you knew to begin with. And then you're actually growing in total knowledge. But your perception is more accurate as time goes on. But in the early stages, it's a a phenomenon in almost any field of study. In the early stages, when someone is new to something and they're just learning for the first time, they think of themselves as a subject matter expert, more knowledgeable than everyone else. This is just a, a true phenomenon. Now, imagine you take that example and you put it in someone who's learning theology, learning doctrine, learning to teach in the church, and they're a, they have no real self-perception. They're a young Christian. They think they know everything and they don't. And you put them in a position where now they're going to teach other people, right? You're, you're buying into the falsehood. You're buying into the lie that they will know things. They'll be able to instruct. And you're setting yourself and the church at large up for failure in such a situation. So it's not a wise thing to do. And so obviously that will lead to them becoming prideful boastful and ultimately that is going to crack in the foundation which as their responsibility grows and as their ministry matures that will be laid to waste now there's names and examples that i could actually think of where uh, their story of how they became a pastor in the ministry was they were converted one week and the next week they started preaching huge danger and often associated with false and unsound teaching as well and paul here tells us of that danger in the text and then the last test is the test of the perception of the world now this one is going to be difficult for us to navigate because we know that the goal of a pastor is not to be a smooth talker with unbelievers to be loved by the world is not necessarily an aspiration for the christian right we we actually aspire to be loved by god loved by god's people not really so much caring about whether the world hates us we, we are accepting that as par for the course But the test of unbelievers is a little bit different than than being loved by unbelievers. It basically means that as so far as the unbelieving world is still discerning about good and bad character qualities, good and bad traits in a person, you don't want to put someone in a position of authority in your church that the world would not put in position of authority in its organizational structure as well. If someone is not fit to uh, hold a normal job where they can be consistent, Uh, it it would not be wise for Christians to say we want them to lead us. That would lead to shame and condemnation and scorn for the church. Just because someone is excitable and spiritual and prays a lot and and they don't have any other things that would be respectable about them does not mean they're in a position fit to lead. The common grace of God tells us that other people in the world, not just believers, can discern whether someone would be a good or a bad fit for leadership. And so if someone has these massive flaws that people in the world could recognize, it would not be wise for the church to say, and we want them to be leading us despite all of these huge flaws. As, as Paul actually, uh, in the church in Corinth, the first Corinthians five, he actually tells the Corinthian church, hey, um, the sexual sin that you guys are tolerating in your midst, even unbelievers know that, that that's wrong. So he appeals to the world knowing it's wrong to show how wrong it actually is. Similarly here, If the world can recognize someone as unfit to lead because of whatever flaws they might have, we should also say that person is probably unfit to lead. Now, this does not mean that the world doesn't like the fact that Christians hold Christian beliefs. That's where we bump into problems with the world today. So this is not a test where unbelievers would elect them to their own leadership. But the idea is, as so far as unbelievers have discernment as well, uh, we should not put someone in position of authority for us that would not pass the smell test in other contexts as well maybe very popularly, we might say it this way, we believe in grace, the free gift of grace from God, and yet that grace does not trump the need for people who hold positions of leadership in the church to be holy, set apart, and aspire towards blameless lives. If a politician would be brought to ruin by scandal, why would we put someone in a pastoral role who who would be brought to ruin by that same scandal? and pass it off as, well, because God is forgiving and gracious, we can do this. I think we often find ourselves in those roles in the church because we love grace. We love the forgiveness of God, which is true. But forgiveness and grace does not demand leadership. And so here, similarly, the world doesn't forgive. So that's why it won't like reappoint elected officials who have scandalized themselves. But the church should take a cue from that in some sense where we should not be so quick to put people back in positions of authority who have scandalized themselves and scandalized the church. In fact, we should say they can be part of the church, they can be welcome in the household of God, they can be forgiven, they can even partake in the Lord's Supper and membership within the body and be a full-fledged believer in the church. And yet, they should not serve as an elder. And that's because it's just simply wise, right? So that, and notice the reason for this test, so that he, this person, is not disgraced and does not fall into the snare of the devil. Ultimately the witness of the church is at stake in this. And it's not hard for us in our world today to think of examples where a pastor would have been better off never having been a pastor because of how, how much they brought scorn upon the church. In fact, you could probably think of podcasts and YouTube videos and documentaries that have been made on this very topic where someone would have been better off just being a faithful Christian at home in the quiet corners of their life and never having been put in the limelight so that they could expose themselves and bring such scorn upon the church of God. So then ultimately the role of an elder is the role of one who is going to bear much of the responsibility in the church. And so they need to be structurally sound enough to be able to bear that load. They need to be uh, solid enough to be able to have this weight put upon them without them crumbling and falling apart and bringing everyone to ruin in their midst. Because ultimately the church is capped by its leadership. A church will never go beyond the maturity, the holiness, the doctrinal knowledge of its leaders, and so it should aspire to have great safeguards about who it does have leading it. Because if you are a Christian following someone who is to be over you, responsible for you, shepherding you, uh, you'd want that person to be running well ahead of you in the race. Just like uh, you would want someone who you don't think of necessarily just as a peer, certainly in some ways you think of them as a peer, as a a co-laborer in the gospel, but you wouldn't want them to be, let's say, an equal in every way. In some sense, you'd want them to be beyond you, to be more trustworthy than you are, to be more mature than you are, in the same way that a child might look up to their father, where they would see them as wise, uh, sound, in some sense, a friend, someone who they can confide in, but also someone who they look up to and show deference and respect for. So then there's kind of two concluding things that we that, that leaves us with tonight. One would be, as Christians within the church, when you have elders who are instructing you, rebuking you, encouraging you, you should hear that in a fatherly kind of way. With authority, with uh, it carries a soberness to it. That's the, that's the dynamic that Paul's setting up here, is that it should be a fatherly kind of dynamic between elders and their members. Now, that might make you feel uncomfortable, uh, and that's because we, we struggle often with authority, giving people authority, giving people weight in our lives, because we know how quickly authority can go sour. And that's why all these safeguards are here in place. But in a healthy, functioning church, the role between an elder and his members should be one of, let's say, paternal relations. Uh, it should be one of fatherly instincts, fatherly care and affection. And similarly, uh, so that's, that's more towards those of you who are members within the church. And for those of you men who would aspire ever to the office of overseer, uh, this is the standard. This is the, this is the litmus test for maturity, and fitness for these positions. We do not have freedom to change these however we see fit. God is the one who sets up the church. He's the one who knows what's best for the church. And ultimately he's the one who guards the church by means of his own instructions. He loves his bride. He knows how to care for her. He knows how she is best cared for. And so here are the requirements for those who are to be stewards of God's people. The responsibility is high. And so therefore, it's not a position, it's not a position of renown. It's, it's honestly not even really a position where you would aspire for the respect of it. There's other ways that you can go and get respectable jobs. Go start a company, become successful in your work. Those are all great ways to gain, gain respect. The, the elder is one who, who's, whose desire is to serve and ultimately feels a burden to do so because this is not a, this is not a fancy call. This is not the kind of position you would go to if you want renown. This is the kind of position you go to if you're willing to stand in the way of false teaching on behalf of your people. This is the kind of position you go to if you're if you're willing to say the hard things to people where they might not receive it well. This is the kind of position uh, you would aspire towards honestly uh, because you're called to and for no other reason. Uh, this is not the kind of thing you go because it's it's fun to do and because other people might like you more or look up to you more. It's with a sober, weighty authority that one approaches this task. And so it's not to be seen as a position of uh, honor in the sense of we aspire towards it and everyone must attain it, but a position of honor where uh, you would fear to be put in such a position because of all the costs that's associated with it. And we can think about all the warnings here, all of the dangers implied. If If one falls short and drops the ball in their work environment, their work life, they might get fired, lose a paycheck. They might be poorly thought of among their coworkers, but life goes on. If, if one drops the ball in that kind of way in the church, in the family of God, uh, there's a lot else that goes wrong in those kinds of situations. People question their faith. People struggle with their ability to relate to God. People struggle with their ability to relate to authority. That, create, that causes great harm, which is why James says, not all of you should aspire to be teachers because the one who teaches will be judged with a stricter judgment. There's more at stake for those who aspire to this role. And so it is with a sober and careful uh, look that one uh, evaluates themselves in these lenses. And that's why we rely on others to evaluate us in this light. That's why it's helpful for Paul to give us this list. And ultimately, this serves for the protection, the safekeeping of the church, which Paul is here trying to get going and get moving even beyond his own life. So with that, let me close us in prayer and we can get into some discussion. Our Father, we thank you for this time in your word uh, where we can gather and reflect upon how you have built your church and how you have uh, structured her to keep her going and moving and uh, functioning in this world. Lord, we pray for your grace as we uh, go into discussion now that you would help us to uh, think carefully uh, about ourselves, about these words that we would be a people who are marked by obedience to your word, uh, and that we would take these commands very seriously and not uh, treat them as, uh, as mere suggestion, but rather the very word of God, which it is. We pray this in your name. Amen.